You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. On today's show, I bring back by popular demand, Mr. James Lavish. James comes with decades of experience as a fixed income investor, VC, and overall Bitcoin educator. On today's show, we talk about how the evolving macro environment doesn't seem to be hampering the price of Bitcoin, despite the numerous liquidity and central banking actions plaguing the global economy. We cover how we see the upcoming quarter shaping up and how the actions in Europe might leave the broader global economy with no further options but to aggressively debase moving forward. James is a talented educator and makes complex topics really accessible, so sit back because he's really providing a great interview in this week's show. With that, let's go ahead and hop to it. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investor's Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm here with James Lavish. James, welcome back. Well, good to be here, Preston. Always like talking to you, and I appreciate you having me back on. Likewise. Love chatting with you. Here's where I, I guess I want to start, is when you're looking at everything happening, and there's a lot happening right now, what stands out to you as really kind of the big chunk kind of thing to focus in on that is upstream of all the other stuff that people might you know hone in on that's actually just noise and, and a byproduct of this bigger thing? What would you say the bigger thing is, James? The bigger thing, I mean, look, everybody is just laser focused on what is the Fed going to do next, right? I mean, if you look at interest rates, you look at the yield curve, you look at how much it's moved, you you listen to the Fed presidents and governors. Uh, you know, the the anybody who's is in those chairs, they keep talking about how they're going to keep raising rates and keep them higher, and that you can just see the market doesn't believe them. Yeah. The market absolutely does not believe them and says, look, there's either a recession coming, something's going to break, meaning uh, you know, we have some sort of credit or liquidity event in the markets, uh, in the credit markets. And uh, they just don't believe it. And so you're, you're watching the yield curve inversion just continue on and the likelihood that the, there's going to be rate cuts has grown to the, the point where I, I think it's now the market is pricing in rate cuts down to... I was seeing just about four percent, just under four percent by December, right? I mean, the the market doesn't believe it. Yeah. Period. And what are we missing here? Where's the disconnect? You know, and that's that's what I'm kind of zeroed in on. Like, what's the disconnect here? And I, I would be interested to hear what you have to say as well. Yeah, no, I, the thing where I'm struggling is I'm looking at the U.S. markets and the credit market when you're looking at the yield curve is screaming that the Fed's got it wrong. There's going to be a correction. And it's imminent. But then when I look at the yield curve over in Europe, it's not looking that way. It's looking like it is still aggressively selling off and that nothing is under control. And you know what? I got these charts. Uh, Hold on. Let me bring up these charts so people can see what we're talking about. The first one that I'm bringing up here, and just let me know if you're you're not seeing it, James, but I have the U.S. Yeah. The U.S. yield curve, and you can see how it's going sideways. So it's not selling off anymore for the most part. I guess the short duration stuff is continuing to sell off, but the long duration Mm -hmm. stuff is actually catching a a slight bid over the last, Mm -hmm. call it four or five months. 
but it, across the yield curve completely, it's going sideways and, and it's upside down, it's inverted. And this is basically what you're saying is the credit market saying, yeah, we don't believe this. You're going to have to ease soon. But where I'm having trouble is I'm looking at the UK. And to me, this, this looks like it's still aggressively selling off to me, right? And then here's the European yield curve. And it's still well within just like the, the standard volatility and it's selling off like mm-hmm. crazy. And so I guess when I'm looking at this and I'm saying, yeah, I, I hear that narrative. I definitely hear that narrative in, in the US that uh, the credit market's pricing in this big change. I'm looking over to Europe and I'm not seeing it. I'm seeing double digit inflation in the UK that just got printed. I think it was 10.2. Yeah. You <laughs> see their their yields, what are they? They're one year is the highest yielding at 3.9%. So you still got a <laughs> 600 basis point spread between that and their inflation. Negative, number. Y- negative yield. Yeah. Negative real yield. I guess where I'm like really struggling is I'm saying everything's systemically connected. Like it's not like you got the U.S. market; and it's completely disconnected from Europe. It's totally connected. I guess. How do you interpret that quandary and that difference between these two markets? It's funny you're watching Europe. They're just they, the central bank in Europe has just been acting in slow motion this whole time, right? I mean, they yeah. they started out last summer. They were still at negative rates in July, while there was double digit inflation, and they 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 then raised rates to be what. If I remember correctly, they've been so far behind on this. And I think there's a few things going on. In the US, we're hyper-focused on what's going on, what the Fed is going to do. And, and it's not just the US. The whole world is focused on this, right? Because the treasury market, the US treasury market being the global reserve asset, and everybody's looking at this. And so the question is, how lagging are all these indicators that the Fed's looking at and when does it catch up? And when it does catch up, does that mean that that's it? We're already in a recession because we have this watershed moment, you know, this like a steep drop off in productivity. We have large layoffs, whatever it may be. Well, we saw it in the, in the industrial numbers this morning. There were some pretty dismal numbers. And what it's showing is that inventories are up, you know, orders are down. And what does that mean? That means that we don't have that supply issue that we had before. And now you've got OPEC that comes out and so they're going to they're cut a million barrels of oil a day. So that just keeps energy priced high. So you keep inflation high and you're trying to battle it. You know, you're crushing demand and it just isn't working yet. But when it does, I think it, it happens in, in, in a way that just sends us spiraling into a recession. And so that's what the market is telling us. But the Fed is so laser focused on just this inflation number that... They're, you know, they don't have enough firepower yet to say, okay, we're going to step back. They thought about it. They thought about it this last meeting. You heard uh, Powell admit that in the last press conference. He said, yeah, we, we actually considered pausing this round, but the inflation numbers are still high enough that we couldn't. And we felt like the, the liquidity event that they faced, that interest rate risk event that that uh, happened with Silicon Valley. I'm not, and I don't think you and I have talked about this on your show yet, but they felt like they had put that fire out. The credit markets were short up. And so they still need to keep inflation down. And so the market's telling them, look, you're, you're going to raise these rates too high and something is going to break because first of all, the bank problem is not finished. Like that's not over. And so 
Now we're starting to talk about the commercial real estate market and all of those leases coming due and the low occupancy that, that you're seeing in office buildings. Like That's going to be a problem. And the biggest problem is that the, that paper is being held by the smaller regional banks, the, the vast majority of that paper. The market's saying, like, look, th- this is going to happen and it's going to happen quickly and you're going to have to pivot. And so that's what, we're, that's, what, that's what the market's saying. And yet you still have Fed and all of its reps out there every day saying, no, 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 we've got to keep rates high. And part of that, I believe, Preston, is part of it is they're trying to instill confidence in the system saying, oh, there's no problem with the banks. Like, mm-hmm. that's, that's okay. We, we, we've taken care of that. Well, how did they take care of that? They injected liquidity into the system. They're already doing it, right? So you see that we're supposed to have quantitative tightening. And though you can't call what happened a couple of weeks ago quantitative easing, it's not really QE, but it is injecting liquidity into the system that would not otherwise be there. There's just no way around that. But at the same time, what's funny about that is at the same time, you're not seeing banks lend to each other. They're pulling capital and putting, you know, they're taking their money market capital and putting into repo, the reverse repo, and just parking it there. It's like you're having this liquidity, you're, you're having this liquidity crunch between banks, but then they're shoring up the banks with this fake QE, like the, you know, and we can talk through the math of that for your listeners. It's a really strange dynamic. And to be honest, I've never seen a market like this. And, and I've never seen so many managers struggle trying to figure out where to put capital because it's a very uncertain situation. There's right nowhere now. to hide. Yeah. There is nowhere to hide. Right. So let's talk about the, the backstop facility. There's a lot of people debating and arguing over the semantics of what it's being called. Some, mm-hmm. and, and it's amazing to me how passionate people are about it not being called QE or not being called this. Yeah. Meanwhile, I guess from my vantage point, I'm not only looking at it as being QE, I'm looking at it as a form of yield curve control. Yeah, we, I want to hear, hear you talk about that too. Right? Like, let's, uh, let's, like, so let's talk through it. Let's talk through what it yeah. is. What happened, right? Yeah. Okay, for your listeners, for anybody, anybody who hasn't already heard what happened at, at Silicon Valley Bank, basically, we're going to simplify it for everybody. I like to do that. We're going to simplify it for everybody so they understand it. There are nuances here. This is not exactly the way that works, but in essence, this is the way it works. For customers put their deposits in a bank. The bank uses those deposits. It puts some in reserves and then it lends the rest out and uses it as a form of leverage so they can make other loans using your capital and generate income on that, right? But the capital they keep in the reserves, they have to do something with. So they can keep in cash. Or they can try to battle inflation and, and, and help their margins by investing it. And they invest in treasuries typically. Well, at Silicon Valley Bank, what they did is they took that capital, they lent most of it out, they kept a little bit in reserves. And then what they kept in reserves, they were listening to the Fed, right? So the Fed, one year, December, okay? So December of 2021, and I'm going to actually do a thread about this. Uh, I've written about it. But I'm going to do a thread about this very soon on Twitter, maybe by the end of this week, so people can, can understand. I mean, the, the Fed is just not a good predictor, right? You can listen to what they say and what their intention is, and that's helpful, but the Fed is not a good predictor. So if you're somebody trying to invest, don't listen to what the Fed thinks they're going to do because they have no clue. Here's evidence. Back in 2021 of December, 2021, they put out their Fed dot plot where they all plot out where they think interest rates are going to be now and in the future in the next couple of years. Well, on that dot plot, they said that at the end of 2022, December 2022, 
they expected the average Fed rep expected that the interest rate was going to be at 0.86%. (laughs) 0.86. I mean, Preston, they were off by 4%. Yeah. Okay. And when you're buying, when you're buying treasuries that are 10 years, 20 years, 30 years out, that 4% is massive. It's a massive move on your principal. Because when you go into the market and if you own that bond and you have to sell it in the market, it's worth way less than it was because you have to compound that 4% over all those years. And it, it generates a, it, you know, a loss for you that's massive. Okay. So let's go back to what happens. They've got these deposits. They put the, some of the deposits in treasuries. They buy, long, they, they buy long dated treasuries. They hear the Fed saying, well, rates are not going to go up. Inflation's not a problem. You know, so they think, oh, we'll, 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 we'll take a flyer on that. We're going to generate more income by holding uh, treasuries that are further out. Then the Fed starts raising rates. Well, people say well, you, they should have hedged that interest rate risk mm-hmm. immediately, having that, that much capital. They should have, in, that, that's what you should do at a bank. You hedge out your interest rate risk. How do you do that? You can do it with swaps. This is where swaps are good, where you can hedge out risks that you don't want to take on. If you don't want to take on a variable interest rate, you can hedge it out by locking that rate in, getting a little bit less of a rate that you would otherwise, but taking out the risk. You can do that. They didn't do that. So instead, they watched the rates start ticking up higher. And once they start ticking up higher, the only thing they could do is lock in a loss. So it's too late unless they think they're really going to go higher, which the Fed kept saying, no, 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 it's transitory. No, 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 inflation it's just going to be a minute. And so they took these massive losses on the books you know, that they didn't even have to list on their books because they can say that these are, these are treasuries that these are assets that we are going to hold classify to. as held to maturity assets, yeah. which means that you don't have to mark them on the gap accounting as a loss. They say that they've got this many assets in, in, in their reserves. They don't really, if you mark it to market, they, it's, it's down 20 or 30%. So then investors start getting wind of this, right? Or, or depositors. Well, you've got two types of depositors, right? You've got your everyday depositors, you and me, and then you've got your business depositors, you know, which are these venture capital firms and these venture capital, the actual companies, right? So these, these, mm-hmm. these uh, very young companies, these tech startups that have a bunch of capital they've raised from these VCs and they've got deposits in the bank, but they use it. That's what they do. They raise capital and then they use it in big chunks to buy equipment, to buy, to uh, do software development, whatever it is. And they, they use it in big chunks. So you've got to match your deposits and uh, the turnover of your deposits and the duration of your deposits to the duration of your reserves. But they didn't do that, right? So they had these big withdrawals. And then people started getting wind that uh, Silicon Valley banks got some big losses on their books if they mark to market. Obviously, depositors get nervous. They start taking out their money. They have a run on the bank. Then what happens? The Silicon Valley has a choice. They can either sell those assets and take a loss or borrow against them. But either way, if you borrow in the overnight window, you borrow from another bank, you're taking a haircut. So there's nothing they could do except sell them down. And then it, you had enough depositors ask for their money back that they became insolvent. They just didn't have it. And so, okay, step in, in, in steps the Fed and the Treasury. And they say, okay, well, we can't have Silicon Valley just go under. We've got, we've got to shore them up because if we let them just go under and all their, their depositors that take that loss, okay, then this could cause some contagion. 
it could cause run on other runs on other banks, runs on other regional banks. So they wanted to shore it up and make sure that everybody knew that they weren't going to execute what is called a bail-in. I wrote about this. It's funny because I wrote about this maybe three weeks beforehand, talking about bail-ins with Credit Suisse mm-hmm. and just making sure everybody understands, hey, look, if you have your capital at a bank, if you have it deposited at a bank, you're only backstopped in the United States for $250,000. And now after 2008, we instituted through Frank Dodd, a new rule, or Dodd Frank, a new rule that the US couldn't just bail out any institution individually, right? So it had to be one a globally systematic, you know, important bank. Well, right? we learned that wasn't true. <laughs> well, yeah, that wasn't true, right? So, but the point is that if they executed the, this new law that says, well, you can execute a bail in, which means that any asset, which includes depositors, yeah. deposits can be used to pay off creditors, you know, in a bankruptcy situation. Well, anything above $250,000, that's fair game for them to claw back and, and use, and you could lose it, right? Because it's not protected under FDIC. It's a lot of information, but the bottom line is the Fed and Treasury came in and said, no, no, if you have your deposits at Silicon Valley, we're going to make you whole. Don't worry about it. What we're going to do is we're going to institute this new rule. Okay. And we're going to have this new funding program. Right. And uh, <laughs> it's just ludicrous, isn't it? It's insane. Well, there's just, they make the rules. And then when it comes like crunch time, it's like, well, we're not going to actually do what we said we were going to do. We're going to do this other thing. And right. because, we're going to manipulate because- the market. We're going to manipulate the market. It's more manipulation, right? Why? Because, well, there's a, there was a lot of very noisy people who were very rich and very wealthy who needed this to be backstopped, right? Now, there are definitely some companies that we would not want to go under, some small tech companies that were going to get hit sideways with this. It was just, you know, it was unfortunate all the way around. It was just, it I was mean, just to poor give, risk management. To give people an idea, Roku, right? What did they have on deposit at Silicon Valley? It was oh, like it, half a billion, right? It was half, yeah. It, it was, was like half a billion dollars. And so like they would have been bailed in. They would have got $250,000 back. back. Yeah. And they, they would have, have to, bailed they have in. Yeah. They, they would have been bailed in the, yeah. the rest of that uh, deposit. That's right. Uh, just to show people how insane this is. But so amazing right, so job laying that out. Right. Where I want you to kind of explain why I'm calling it yield curve control. I'm curious if you would agree with that definition yeah. of it. But explain what you think it should be called or... or All right, well, let's, could, well, let's, let's yeah. back up. The bank, bank term funding program, BTFP, I mean, mm-hmm. okay, what is it? And so people have to understand what it is yeah. To, yeah. to really get their head around it, right? Basically, they're saying if a bank is in need of capital, right, and they're eligible, they're FDIC insured, they can borrow against their securities instead of selling them on the open market, right? So they can go to the treasury and they can borrow them, right? And not, not everything is, is, up for, uh, is available to borrow against, but U.S. treasuries and, and high-quality uh, mortgage backs, MBSs, right? Here are a few kickers. First of all, they get to borrow at par value. They don't have to borrow at the, at the market rate, which is you know, what they could sell it in the market for. So they get 100%. Next thing is they don't take any haircut, right? So they, it's not just the market value. They, they don't have that 5% haircut either, okay? Then the rate is the one-year overnight swap rate. So it's a year out plus 10 basis points, okay? So it's not, it's not what Fed funds is. It's a year out. And we all know that the yield curve, it's inverted. So yields are they're, they're lower a year out. 
There's no prepayment penalty. The loan term is for one year. There are no, there are no transaction fees. And then this is, the, this is the best part. So Greg Foss and I talked about this on, on Spaces the other day. If you're a bank and you need capital, you go to the overnight window, which means that you borrow from another, another bank. And that's kind of the typical thing. We go to the overnight window and you, you borrow from another bank and it's just what they do. But when you have a capital like crunch, liquidity crunch, other banks won't lend to you because your, your credit is like, then, then we're not going to, you know, JP Morgan's not going to lend to you. Sorry, because we don't believe that you'll be able to pay it back. And it's really embarrassing. You have to go to the discount window, which is actually borrowing directly from the Fed. And it's a bad, it's a stigma. It's negative. Right. So you don't want to say that you borrowed from the Fed. It's kind of, uh, right. Okay. What they've done is they said, you can borrow from us and we'll keep it secret. Mm, we won't tell yeah, anybody. Yeah, so yeah. nobody has to know that you borrowed from us for at least a year after the term of your borrowing. All right. So that kind of sets it up. So what does that mean mathematically? Well, it means that, look, if you have 100% value of whatever you're trying to borrow against, well, if you went to the overnight window and you want to borrow or the discount window, if you went to the overnight window and you want to borrow against that, well, you'd have to, you'd first have to mark to market value. So let's take a 30% haircut there. So now you've got 70 cents on the dollar that you can borrow against. Then you have to take your haircut. It's another five cents, right? So now you're at 65 cents on the dollar that you can borrow against. So for a million dollars, you can borrow $650,000. And this is just and all in the hope program. and the prayer. This is all the hope and the prayer that rates come back down so that you don't get crushed even further while it's sitting on deposit with them. Right. Right. Exactly. But if you go into the BTFP program, you can borrow all 100%. You can borrow your, your million dollars, whatever it is. So what does that mean? That means that you basically are getting 35% more for that you have access to 35% more liquidity than you otherwise would have. 35% over 65. I mean, it's literally. 50% more than you would have otherwise, right? Yeah. So you get $350,000 for a million more on top of the 650 that you would have gotten. So in 350 divided by 650, that's like 50% more than you would have been able to get otherwise. It's 50% kick boost in your liquidity. And this is why I'm saying it is liquidity in the market mm-hmm. because, and people say, well, you've got to pay it back. And yeah, you do, but it's short, it's absolutely short-term liquidity that you would not have access to otherwise because that liquidity is not in the market. It's not like I'm borrowing from JP Morgan and taking it off of their books. That liquidity is in the market. Mm-hmm. I'm taking it from the Fed and putting it into the market. So it's, it's adding liquidity to the market where that isn't there otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. You have to pay it back in a year, but that's absolutely a form of QE. It's not traditional QE, but it's absolutely a form of it. Well, so James, so let's pull the thread. Okay. So we all know the the Fed's playbook is that they're going to create a recession. This is what they think is going to happen, right? And maybe it is what is going to happen. I'm just saying this is the only way that this works for them is they create a recession. All the rates come collapsing back down to the 0% across the whole duration of the curve. Then -hmm. all these banks can then go back Take all these debt instruments that are sitting on deposit there. They put them back on their books because now the, the value is back to the, the par value that it was, right? They quickly pay back the loans and everything. And, and it's like time stops in their minds. Time stops right there and doesn't progress forward ever again. 
for this to all work, right? For this to work, you have to be able to stop time in the year from now if all of that actually happens, what I just described. Because what nobody plays out is the step after that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. And right? the second, third step. But yeah, go, yes. the, step, go so, to the first step after. So, yeah. so then they're going to flood the system with more monetary units as, as all these rates come collapsing back down. It's going to, like, you think the, the supply chains were broke on the last one with COVID. Just wait till the next round. and. Wait till the next round of what happens inflation-wise as they try to re-stimulate this economy as they yeah, just I mean, the way, literally broke it. How bad is the recession? Everything. That's the first question. How yeah. bad is the recession? Like, how, how hard does it hit? And that's what we're trying to figure out. And I mean, nobody James, knows. Yeah, it has to hit hard. Yeah. I mean, look at the amount of manipulation that happened here. It's not like it's going to be 
this soft layup that everybody can recover from yeah, and that they two- don't need to induce a lot of stimulus into. That's right. right. And you have, you have, so you have two things that could happen. I mean, of course, there are other things that we can't even imagine, but you have a harder session. You know, there's not going to be a soft landing. That's just ludicrous. I just can't see it happening. I mean, they're saying softish, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I would put a low probability on that. Yeah. Okay. It's not a zero chance, but I'd put a low probability on it. All right. And then you, you have a harder session, which is high probability to me. Mm-hmm. Another high probability to me, but which is not, maybe not more than 50%, but it's a higher probability than a soft-ish landing, is we have a real credit event, like a real credit event where you have some sort of lockup in the repo market or lockup in the treasury market where the Fed has no choice but to flood the market with massive liquidity immediately, like in an emergency measure. And that, that's a distinct possibility. And so why is that? Because of just the sheer amount of leverage that's in the system. You pull one string. That, I mean, okay, let's back up. You had one bank. It was the 17th largest bank in the nation at the time, Silicon Valley. And the Fed was so worried that there would be a spread of contagion and a real credit event from this, a run on banks, a lockup of the treasury market, whatever it may be, because of a fleet of capital out of these banks. And I mean, it it was a little bit nervy there that weekend, right? And so they rushed in to save this bank, number 17 in the nation. Because they had a run on deposits. Do you know how many other banks we have that don't really have their liquidity short up? I mean, they can go to the they can go to the this new BTFP window, but JP Morgan is talking about that adding two trillion dollars of liquidity to the market because they had to rush and save them to be sure that this doesn't happen again. So then asked in front of was it the Senate or Congress? I can't remember who she was talking to, but Janet Yellen, when point blank she was asked. Will you backstop every bank? If this happens to another regional bank, are you going to be there? Right after, I mean, Powell's, this is the kind of clown show where we're, we're in a circus, right? It was within 30 minutes of each in, other. In one tent over here, you've got, you know, <laughs> this guy is telling us the Fed snake oil. And he says, we're going to keep raising rates. Everything's good. Everything's fine. The bank situation is, it, we've dealt with that. We're not in a panic about that. We're not, we're not particularly worried about that now. If you have money and deposits in the bank, you can assume that it's safe. He says this. And then in the other tent, just two doors down, at literally the exact same time, Janet Yellen is telling her audience, oh, no, we're not backstopping every bank. You cannot assume that. I mean, literally, I mean, you couldn't have scripted. I'm like, they're literally saying at the same moment, like, which tent should we be in? Which, which tent should we listen to? So James, I want to I want to pull the thread on you basically said I think it's a real low probability that they get a soft landing. I agree. You think it's yeah. a it's a high probability that they get a hard landing and when we look in Europe and we're still seeing 600 basis points spread between inflation and their in their yield curves. I think that's right, for everybody to understand, for everybody to understand. That means if you buy a bond in Europe and you hold it for 2 years, you're you're basically losing 6% a year. And your purchasing power when you get when you get paid back. So we'll go ahead. Well, when I'm looking at that, that's the reason why I think this thing's not only just going to hit; it's going to hit really hard. Is because none of this is under control. Looking at like where we're at right now, there was a big announcement this past week with OPEC Plus saying that they were going to cut the amount of supply that they're adding into the market. 
I've heard two different scenarios on this. It's, hey, they're, they're, uh, they're wanting to play ball with the U.S. and European Central Bank and Bank of Japan, and they're basically not going to be held captive to the dollar dominance. And this is a big middle finger to those planners and their ability to get inflation under control by controlling the number one input, which is energy input to the inflation numbers, right? Yeah, it's, 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 derivative, it's derivative to all of it. The second side of that that I'm hearing is people that are saying, no, 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 no. They're just doing what they normally do. Uh, I think Jeff Snyder, this is kind of his, his take. I'm sure Joe Carlosari would agree. And other people would look at that and say, no, this is just what they do at this point. They're expecting it. The treasury market here in the US is suggesting we're getting ready to go into recession. And this is a standard cut in order to make sure that the price doesn't collapse too much and, and it's a preemptive move. Which side of the, that do you side on? And based on where you see it, what, what do you think that impact is in the coming six months? I think that they're using the, the typical playbook as kind of a, a front, but they're, they are exploring other avenues of currency to the treasury and or to the US dollar. And that is the danger. I mean, if you just look at it, I mean, there were already rumblings about brick, the bricks getting expanded to bricks with two I's and two S's. So, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa getting expanded to also Iran and Saudi Arabia, right? It, they, it, they're clearly sending a shot over the bow. And, and just I because they say they're going to do a million, what was the, I don't remember what the number 980,000 barrels a day less. A day. I think. Yeah, they're going to cut so, it by 980,000 barrels a day. So if I'm them and I am going to exercise the more aggressive strategy, middle finger to the central planners of the West, I would come out with what seems to be a pretty normal announcement. And then that doesn't mean I actually have to implement what the number I said. I could be maybe way more aggressive right. in how much I pull right. it back. And that, exactly. I guess that's what I'm afraid of. That's what I think is actually the most probable. That they're going to cut more. They're going to cut more than what they're already saying that they're going to cut. Yeah, but we look, we stepped into this, right, Preston? We stepped into it by, by weaponizing the treasury against... Yeah. I mean, that's just, it, it's nonsensical. That was just the worst chess move I've ever seen in U.S. Treasury you know, playbook. I just can't believe that we actually did that. If you're a country that's on the margin and you're using U.S. dollars and, and U.S. dollar denominated debt, you know, you're looking for other avenues because you're, you're worried about, let's say, you know, if you're China, you don't want to be holding treasuries because we can use that against them. Obviously, we've done it before now. We've set the precedent that, we're, we, that we will weaponize the treasury against you. And, uh, and so, of course, if you're Saudi Arabia, wouldn't you be doing this? I mean, wouldn't you be looking for avenues? I mean, it does well, make it seems sense. Like, it seems like they have a lot of these deals already in place to start coming off of the dollar. You're already seeing uh, a lot of the pricing happening in the, in the yuan. In and, yuan. Yeah, yeah, it's already started happening. That's right. And China executed their first uh, LNG purchase in yuan. Well, so, let, so let's tell people the consequence of what we're talking about. So let's say they cut more. Oil rips. Let's say oil starts going over 100 again. 120, 140. Yeah. What's this mean for inflation? And then what does that mean for these treasury markets that here in the US people were thinking are under control and that are maybe need to be start getting to be bid? 
when in fact none of the inflation is under control still yeah so the inflation it continues to spiral out of control well it, it hasn't spiraled out of control inflation is coming down but that's because we're crushing demand and uh but the problem is as you're crushing demand and we're going into recession you're raising the price of energy and energy is derivative to everything we do it's it's derivative to food housing like every material everything that we need because we're we're importing so much that we have to pay you know higher import fees to actually get materials here to everything costs more when you include it obviously when energy is more expensive everything costs more so everything inflates and that gets passed on to the consumer there's only so much that the manufacturers and you know these companies can actually they can swallow themselves that they that they don't pass on so they have to pass on a certain percentage yeah. of it that's you know so it's so just what it is and keep their margins high what's your base case on oil cuz i kind of think it goes sideways or maybe even up in the coming 6 months i'm curious yeah, if I you do, agree, I agree with me. i agree I, yeah, yeah agree. and i agree and that and so if you look at i mean look go through the machinations of what happens in in a recession right so you start having layoffs you start having a, a decrease in demand you start having margins are, are compressed for companies because they're, they're not selling as many products and then on top of that now they're the cost of everything is higher because of energy and so the layoffs are even steeper the demand is, drops even more because the the prices are higher so you wind up, and this is what this is the problem of the soft landing is that it almost makes a certainty that we're going to have a hard landing. If you have energy prices going up, as you have demand coming down, and we're going into like we're going, we're driving into this recession with all of this leverage. I mean, it just makes it almost a certainty that we're gonna have a hard landing in the next six to nine months. And how that's how my, do you that's, see Bitcoin performing through that? Because I think that that that's I think you have a lot of people that looked at the 2020 big giant credit event that happened and they saw Bitcoin. I think it was, you know, 10,000 got punished down to like 4,000. But there was a lot of froth leading up to that where we saw Bitcoin go from four up to like 14,000. And so I think you still had a lot of speculators in the market just prior to the 2020, the March 2020, like yeah. really quick sell off. Where I look at the the market today, and the past year and a half has just been a bloodbath. Like it's been aggressive selling. Obviously, we got a nice bid since the start of the of the year, where it's up like eighty percent in Bitcoin. That's just normal performance for a quarter uh, day. Uh, that's normal volatility <laughs> day but, in a life. Uh, yeah. But I think that I don't see a lot of speculators in the market. I think there's been tons of selling. So how do you see Bitcoin performing if your base case of something really breaks down here in the coming six to nine months? How does Bitcoin perform through all of that? Well, let's start from the top, right? So when you see, when you have, when you have, okay, let's say that we have a steep market sell-off, that we do have, we, you do have some sort of, of crash and risk on assets. Well, when that happens, we call it the correlation just becomes one. That means investors sell everything just to have liquidity and go into cash. They don't care what it is. They're just like, take 20% off the books. Just take it off the books. I don't care what, all of it, sell it all. I mean, sell it all. And that's what they do. And so you see all correlations go to one. It doesn't matter if it's a treasury, doesn't matter if it's a stock, doesn't matter if it's gold, all correlation goes to one. 
And especially normally you could see treasuries actually take in some of that capital. But in this market, people are worried now because they've gotten so hurt with treasuries last year. They don't know what's happening. Yeah. Right. So it just everything goes to cash. So in that scenario, Preston, what I see happening is Bitcoin selling off. I think it sells off. But I think that assets like that, like Bitcoin and gold solidify quickly. And Bitcoin in particular has a V recovery, like it just comes right back. I see it as if it's a sell-off, that's a tremendous opportunity. I don't see it as something where we sell off to, you know, 9, 12, 14,000 and just, you know, then we're in purgatory for another year. You know, I don't see that happening. I see a sharp sell-off and a sharp recovery. And so do I know? Of course not. Bitcoin, I mean, it does what it does, but that's what I would expect. If we have all correlate, all, all assets correlate to one event, especially if it's some sort of like credit event. Now, could we, up, could we see 40,000 Bitcoin before something like that would happen? The 30,000 or could we get absolutely? Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're like, we're bumping up against 30 already. We could absolutely see 40,000 this spring. It's the, the absolutely, which means that in a sell off, well, if it sells off 50% from there, it's down to 20. It's very difficult to pinpoint. Also, it really depends on what, what is happening with rates. If the, if the Fed comes out and says, all right, let's back up. First of all, look, Bitcoin right now, this is, the, this is the funny part, is you said it so well the other day. You said it so well when we were on that, that space of stage. You said, look, people, what people are discounting, they don't understand is that we are psychopaths. We are not selling this coin. <laughs> like we own Bitcoin and we're going to hold it. Because we are psychopaths. We are. Right? <laughs> we got conviction. I mean, that's really what I'm, have, I'm, have, I'm just trying to make it funny, though. <laughs> it is, but it's, it is funny, but it's, it, we have, and look, this is one of the first pieces I ever wrote way back when I first got into Twitter. This is my first thing is like, look, you have to have deep, deep conviction in something that has a very, very high reward to risk, you yes, know? Yes. Um, and so it's something that gives you a tremendous risk adjusted return. And you have very high confidence in that. And that puts it up in this quadrant that you want to put more capital to. That's where you want to put your capital. And that's where you want to have a very long-term view and weather these little storms as you see that going out. So that's so important as an investor to have these high, high, high conviction investments that aren't emotional, but you really do understand it, deeply understand it, and deeply believe in it for a long term, like a very long duration asset, right? But let's back up for a second. Look, Bitcoin is straddling between being like the leading risk on asset. It's like the tip of the spear of risk on assets over the last couple of years. Bitcoin goes down while the market just follows and NASDAQ follows with it. Bitcoin goes up, well, then all the FANG stocks follow after it. There's a lot of reasons for that, but it's straddling between being that tip of the spear risk on asset and being the financial lifeboat in the event of like an all out banking crisis. So it's kind of benefited from the, from the recent turmoil. And now the prospect that the Fed could be done tightening. And so what I could see happening in your scenario is the Fed calls it quits in the next meeting, or they raise and say, this is we're probably north of a neutral rate. Okay, which the neutral rate is where it does not affect the economy at all. It doesn't have a tightening effect. It doesn't have a loosening effect, right? But if you're above the neutral rate, that means you have a tightening effect on the economy. And if you hold that rate there, then you're expecting the, the, that unemployment will go up. 
that the productivity will go down, that prices will come down, and you'll you'll you know you'll you'll tame inflation if you're above that neutral rate. Europe has been below the neutral rate for like had <laughs> like in perpetuity. I'm not even close yet. I'm close. So where we are is I think what they may do, and look, we're speculating on the Fed. Who knows what they're going to do? But let's just say that they do raise one more time, 25 base points, and they signal like, that's it. That's it. We're above the neutral rate. We think that inflation is coming down hard enough that this is probably where where we end. Like this is our terminal rate. That's where the, in, that's the highest the rate goes in the, in the cycle, right? That's your terminal rate. And then that's your terminal rate. And then you back off from there. Well, if they do that, I could see risk assets, stocks, bond, or stocks, um, FANG stocks, and particularly Bitcoin just ripping. And it could easily get over 40,000. Does it stay there? Well, do we have a credit event? How bad is the recession? And when does it hit? And what tips it off? What company collapses? I completely what? agree with the way you're describing this. This is, it's exactly how I see it going down, too. Like, especially if we get like this cascading, contagion cascade that's yeah, it the, yeah the cascading where it just one one event just leads to another event and then suddenly you, you have a credit crisis that's distinctly possible and that's does, that's the part that worries me you know that's the part that worries me the credit event let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors buy low sell high it's easy to say hard to do for example high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? 
Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right. Back to the show. How do you speak to the boomer population that maybe understands Bitcoin or, or wants to have some of it in their portfolio based on this setup? When we said it earlier, we're like, there's no place to go that is com- definitely not comfortable. <laughs> so no, like, how would you exactly. construct a portfolio for somebody like that? Yeah, well, they have to own gold because they understand it, but they also have to understand that gold's been confiscated before. And some of them have been around right after that, right? So they know that this is possible. They also, I, what I explained is like gold has a massive amount of paper around it. Like that market is so much. That's my biggest uh, concern with it is just yeah, the manipulation of it. The manipulation of it. And so that right there, just understand that. Okay. Yes. I do tell them they should own some gold. Because they're very comfortable with that. And it has been a good asset to you know, store your value. Well, it's low vol. I mean, at the end of the day, if it's you're 60, 70 years old, like you can't afford to have 80% vol in your entire portfolio. Like that's, you know, people, who, people who are right. saying but that they should, should they just aren't actually putting themselves in their shoes, right? Yeah. And I, and I disagree with that. If you look, if you're a 25 year old, even a 35 year old kid, you know, kid, 35 years old, but if you're a 35 year old person, and you want to have 80% of your, your net worth in Bitcoin, well, you know, that's that's your prerogative. If you if you can if you have enough daily liquidity that you don't need access to that capital, fine. You know, because you could lose it all and you you could make it back. That's your deal. You know, I don't recommend it. I wouldn't, but you know, now that said, if you have the kind of conviction that you believe in this asset, deeply believe in it long term. And you don't need access to that capital for a while, then you don't care about the volatility because the volatility is actually a positive and that's okay. But if you're a boomer and you're 65, 75 years old, well, you could have periods of volatility. They're so massive that it could impact you too much to have that kind of. So I agree with but you. They need to, uh, they so, need to have some position. But right? I, but I tell them you, yeah. should, you must have some. Why do you need to own some? Well, because. Well, there's a number of reasons, right? We, we, we're seeing now that there, first of all, you want some sort of store of value, right? And Bitcoin is the best digital store of value that's ever been created. It's, like, it's not even close. And I explained to them, I start with the money, you know, Preston, I start with the money and what the problems are with the money, how badly it's being manipulated. And so your purchasing power is going to go down. 
If you own bonds, you're going to lose purchasing power. There's just no way around it. Why? And I explained to them about how the Fed needs negative real rates in order to keep the debt spiral from spiraling out of control in the next five to 10 years. They need negative real rates of return by having high inflation. Well, that high inflation means that it's going to impact wherever you have your assets. Your house is not liquid. You know, you don't want to have three Airbnbs. That's probably not the best choice. So what do you do? You have to, you have to store your value somewhere. And if you have a complete collapse of the system, Bitcoin is the only asset that you can take with you anywhere and it can't be confiscated. Yeah. It's anti-inflationary. I mean, like, and when I, when I start talking about the money, that's where they really do get it. Cause they do understand they've seen prices go up their whole life. They've seen these prices get out of control. And so they do understand that and they do it. And so I tell them, look, have one, two, 3% of your money minimum in there. If you lose the two or 3%, who cares? You know, who cares? It's you the, the asymmetry of it. Yeah. It's the asymmetry that provides. And the asymmetry yeah. of it is it could save the whole rest of your portfolio. Yes. If the world does collapse and Bitcoin does take on that crown of store of value, it eats up gold. It eats up bonds. It eats, I mean, like it, it would eat up massive chunks of the investable assets of the world and it'll be worth a hundred times what it is today. Is there anything that you're excited in the Bitcoin startup or things that are being built through this deep recession that we went, the Bitcoin recession that we went through? I mean, look, I just got off and I can't disclose uh, details, but as you know, that I'm, I've launched the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund and we're closing funding soon. But with Greg Foss, Larry Lapard, Corey Clipson from Swan, Mark Moss, and the, my co-managing partner, David Foley, we're doing a distressed We've launched this distressed investment fund. It's, it's focused on distressed and deep value opportunities in the Bitcoin space, only Bitcoin. But what we're seeing is I, I just talked to a company and they're going to have a down round that's going to be, it's deeply in the hole. And it's a fraction of the valuation they, that they got their first round of capital in. Now they're doing fine. They're doing great. But I think that they're going, they're an, an excellent company. They're a very strong company, but they're struggling to raise capital right now. Because of all the damage in the space, there's so much damage in the space and so much contagion in, in Bitcoin from all the garbage, from the FTX and the Celsius and all the, all the, you know, the fraud and mismanagement and the complete lack of risk management. There are tons of opportunities out there. And I'm excited because it's just like back in, a, in, in 2000 when we had the complete tech wipeout and you had to pop the tech bubble. If you pick the right companies, you pick the, the right spots, the internet the explosion of growth in the internet from that period to now has been just tremendous, you know? And so it's kind of like that where you can make multiples of your capital and finding the right companies that are very levered to this growth. We're excited about it. We're super excited. So um, that's, that's, we're working on it every day. I have to say it's for accredited investors only. I wish it wasn't. It's an SEC rule. I wish I could change that, but I can't. But, you know, it's just reality. But if anybody wants more information about it, you can go to BitcoinOpportunity.fund and just put in your information. We're happy to send packet to you. So, but that's about all I can really say about it without getting in trouble. But, you know, that's, uh, it, it's, we're excited. Yeah. Awesome. 
James, I could talk to you all day. Love these chats. Truly love these chats and just trying to figure out where this is going. I think. Well, and you and your, your listeners can hear us. You know, they can hear that. Look, we're navigating this too. There's a lot of uncertainty. And I like to talk in percentages and probabilities because, yes. I, I mean, it's just reality. None of us know exactly what's going to happen. But what I'm looking for, so you asked me what I'm watching. I am watching the credit markets. I'm watching the credit markets. So if you, you know, for your, your listeners, watching what's happening with the treasury market, what's happening with the high yield market, what's happening with bonds and their yields and the yielding inversion and exactly where those rates are going and not just where they move to, but the rate at which they move. Like those are indications how quickly they move that there's a move index that you can, you can watch the MOVE that, that shows the volatility of bonds. And then the other thing that people can see, and and even if you don't have a, um, a Bloomberg terminal, you can see the, the sovereign CDS rates online. And then we talk about them all the time on Twitter, where, where some of these companies' credit default swaps are. And that's the best indication of what's going on in a company. Because when you own a bond and you're, you're high up in the claims ladder of that company, and you feel you need protection because that company might trip a covenant or go bankrupt, you're buying a CDS. If those CDS prices go up, again, you're watching the rate at which they move. That is a huge indication. So Greg Foss and I were talking about it months and months and months ago about Credit Suisse. Why? Because you could see the credit default swaps just suddenly just making moves that were just like, they are huge moves. It's like, okay, there's something going on here. It's a, just a real quick indication. If you're not an investor that's, that's deep in that company all day long, and you're, you're just watching from the periphery and you see the credit default swap just spike, well, that's a major red flag. Those are things we're watching. We don't know anything. But we're, you know, we're keeping an eye on that because the thing that scares me the most, Preston, is the credit event. That's what scares me the most. Yeah. And so we're just, I'm just trying to keep an eye and out and, and see if, uh, if there's any indication there to help people and to uh, make people aware. Well, thank you so much for making time and coming on. I know you highlighted the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund. Uh, I know you're active on Twitter. We'll have links to that in the show notes. Anything else yeah. that you wanted to highlight? No, I mean, uh, you know that I, I write the informationist. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The newsletter, newsletter. of course. Yeah. yeah. And so, and, you know, I do that every single week and I pick out a topic that I, I simplify for people, just make it super simple for anybody to understand. And so it's been awesome. I think it suddenly jumped over 15,000 subscribers this week and uh, it's been fun. It's a great community. I get a lot of good interaction from people there and uh, people under, trying to understand what's going on. It feels I love helping people break into the into the knowledge of this space because it's so opaque, especially on the institutional side with the treasury and the Fed. And everybody yeah, talks in acronyms yeah. and nobody understands what everybody's throwing around, you know, and it's so, so much jargon, <laughs> so much jargon. And, it, and I love simplifying for people. And so, yeah, that's hey, a, man, it's fun I, I love me. that. Yeah. I yeah. love that about so, you. Yeah. No, thank you. Well, we'll have links to that in the show notes. James, thank you for coming on today. Uh, Of course. Always uh, good to talk to you, Preston. I appreciate it. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So 
anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.